Colossians was written while Paul was in prison. And I often think that Paul, uh, he had such a dramatic, what you might call conversion, although it was God intervening into his life in such an amazing way, you might say Paul did not even have a choice. And in a way that's true because God quite literally chose Paul to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he also told Paul that he would have to suffer greatly. That part of his mission was to proclaim. Part of Paul's mission was a call to suffer. And Paul kind of wore his sufferings and his trials as a badge of honor. That Paul would say for him to be counted worthy to share in the sufferings of Jesus was a high calling. No doubt, Paul would have preferred to walk as a free man, not to be confined to prison. Paul would have probably preferred to have traveled to the church that gathered at Colossae and speak to them in person. But his restrictions meant that he had to resort to writing letters. And the New Testament is filled. Well, it's not filled. But there are many of Paul's letters that make up the New Testament. And they were not only read to the church to whom they were addressed. So this church, this letter written to the church at Colossae would have also been taken to other churches in that same region, and they would have read that same letter to encourage those churches. And as I thought about that this week, it struck me that here over 2,000 years later, these same letters are being read in churches surrounding the globe. That if you think about the fact that Paul was restricted, and I wonder, did Paul ever have any idea about how these letters that he wrote would shape the Christian church over 2,000 years or around 2,000 years later? And my guess, the answer would be no. But these same letters guide us they sometimes help us refocus, and those same letters serve as encouragement to churches today. And hopefully as encouragement to us this morning at Creekside Church, as we look at part of this letter that Paul wrote to a group of believers so long ago. And Colossians reminds us of the supremacy of Jesus, chapter 1. The fullness of our salvation, kind of chapter 2. A reminder of who we are and how we are called to live. And in the first part of Colossians 3, Paul says we need to train our minds to dwell on things unseen. That the faith that we hold to 
is built on God who is everlasting, God who is unchanging, and God who is invisible. And so Paul says we need to train our minds to dwell on things, sometimes he says eternal, to rest actually on things unseen. That if we want to live transformed lives, we need to think about what we think about. And it's not easy. In his book, For the Love of God, I think it's part two of a a group of books, D.A. Carson says this, people do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, and that's a very interesting phrase, People do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, or obedience to Scripture, nor do they delight in the Lord. We tend to drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and somehow call it freedom. So when Paul speaks, even in Colossians 3, he talks about putting off the old, And putting on the new, he is not talking about a piece of clothing that is easily changed. It's not like the little outfit that Leah Patterson wears every Sunday morning. The last little while, if you've noticed, her Sunday outfit includes a life jacket. She does not wear that apparently during the week, but on Sunday mornings when she gets ready for church, she puts on a life jacket. Very interesting. Paul is not talking about a change that is that simple or easy. It's difficult. It's about a new life that requires a renewed mind. And so in verses 1 to 11, Paul seems to be talking directly to me. Saying, Doug, you know what? If you don't want to look like, if you don't want to actually think like the world around you, you will need to train your mind to ponder things such as the grace and love of God. Ponder things like the presence of God that dwells within us as his children. Ponder things like the reality of heaven. And as I said a couple of weeks ago about a banquet table that already has your name written on it. And we sang that song this morning about the reality of heaven. Paul says we need to train our minds to actually dwell there. These truths about my I think Paul might say your real life, not that this isn't real, but he said there's an aspect of your life that you have not even fully enjoyed or experienced. These truths about my real life need to hold more weight and be of greater value to me than the quality of my kitchen countertop the size of my truck, 
or the strength of my financial portfolio. And you could list whatever else you wanted to list. Our natural tendency is to think about things of this world. And Paul says, if that is my preoccupation, I will find it difficult, if not impossible, to truly live a transformed, reborn, new life in Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke with a man of God who knows firsthand what I think he would actually call the addictive hold that the pursuit of wealth can have on a person. We sometimes don't think that that pursuit as destructive or controlling, yet it often is. And this man who has experienced, I'm going to say, great wealth, and then God, in, in very dramatic ways, taught him lessons about that. And he has shared his experiences to other people to sort of guide them, to counsel them. And he would say that even though they may nod at his advice, he would say that giving up the adrenaline rush that material success can provide is difficult. And you might ask, well, is it not possible for me to have all of those things that you just identified? Granite countertop, a really nice truck, and a good financial portfolio. Can I not have all those things and still experience all that God has for me? I think the answer to that is, yes, that's possible. And I think probably people here may know of, of people who have been blessed by God financially, and who have taken that blessing of God and used it for the kingdom and the glory of God. So yes, it's possible. But the answer to that question may also be, maybe not. Maybe some of those things, some of those trappings of life are things that you may have to sacrifice. I think the transformed life, the life that Jesus called us to live, is a life that is about sacrifice. And those sacrifices may well be the things of this world. But I think Paul would say that experiencing the reality of the new life we have in Jesus will not happen without us intentionally adjusting our thinking and sometimes that adjusting may have some very practical repercussions in how you live. So I may ask these kind of questions of myself. In light of my faith, how do I want to live? In light of my faith, what message do I want to give to my family? What am I currently modeling for my own children? 
I think many people have sacrificed what God could do through them within the church because they are consumed with other priorities. At the same time, there are also those who have chosen to live differently because of their faith. They have maybe been willing to accept a lower standard of living for the sake of family, for the sake of church, and perhaps for the sake of peace. The Bible says the cares of this world can often be measured by the degree of anxiety we face. The truths of God and the things of heaven can be measured by the degree of peace we experience. And so Paul speaks directly, I think, into my heart and my mind and asks, Doug, what is it that consumes you? What drives you? Now that was kind of my message about two weeks ago. What I would call quite a personal question that Paul has for me. And then in verses 12 to 17, Paul moves, I'm going to say, from a conversation he might have with me in a coffee shop. And he comes and he speaks to the church. And as Chris said so well, even before the service, the call to live as spiritually reborn people is not a call to isolation It's not a call to independence. It's a call to interaction, relationships, and community. That if I think I can live out my faith without embracing the church, without embracing in some way other people, maybe I have put on a form of religion that I wear as kind of a spiritual accessory. It's not really who I am. It's not really how I see myself. I kind of put it on on Sunday and take it off as soon as I hit the parking lot. But Paul is talking about a transformed life, getting its directions from a transformed mind, and I believe that when we gather as God's people, we remind each other of things unseen. We remind each other of the faith that we have in common. We encourage each other because we're on the same spiritual journey. That as a people of God, we are redeemed, we are restored, we are reborn children of God. The church is an easy target for criticism and always has been. Some question whether we really need it. Some see it as 
boring, as a waste of time. It's my hope and prayer as we gather as Creekside Church that the truth of God's word would actually grab our attention and engage our hearts and our minds in a way that challenges us and motivates us. And I don't want it to be boring. I think Paul would remind us in Colossians 3, verse 12 to 17, that deeper than the creative things we might try to do in church, far more important than any format that we might adopt are the relationships we share within the body of Christ. That in order to live out well what we say we believe, it needs to be tested in some way within the context of relationships. God has given the church gifts of the Spirit. Gifts given by the Spirit of God to the people of God for the purpose of encouraging one another. I find it interesting as I thought about that, most of the gifts of the Spirit are exercised within some kind of gathering. On a Sunday morning, they may very well be exercised someplace between the parking lot, the foyer, and the children's area. Gifts of encouragement that you may give and share to somebody else before you even come into the service. Gifts of service, of helps, gifts of hospitality. Gifts in a way that actually come to an abrupt halt, kind of once the service begins. Only to resume after the service has ended. Now, I also believe that there are gifts of the Spirit of God that are exercised while we gather as a church. But I believe most, if not many of them, are exercised outside of a Sunday morning gathering. They're exercised within the context of small groups. Conversations with somebody over a cup of coffee. Prayer meetings. That in those settings, the gifts that God has given you may be poured out for the sake of somebody else. And you may not even realize them as a gift of the Spirit of God. But they are. And they speak to the truth that the church is about rubbing shoulders with other people. Listening to what God might have us say or do. And in the process, we build each other up in what we believe in the faith that God has called us to. North America has a fascination, I think, for things that are big and for things that appear successful. This mentality has impacted, I think, what we expect from a church, and maybe it even affects how we think about church. That to really do church well, you need to be big enough 
to provide something amazing and awesome for everybody. You need to be big enough to hire gifted people, financially strong enough to create irresistible environments. Some view the church as kind of a spiritual venture. That you need to take those who are entrepreneurial minded and simply allow them to lead the way in this spiritual venture. To some, the church is a kind of a dispensary of spiritual resources, programs, events, retreats. So you need to try to make sure you offer something for everyone. Get all the pieces in place. Much of what is written about the church today tends to reflect the experiences of large, successful churches. And the tendency is to look around in a way to find out what seems to be working really well someplace else and trying to imitate in some way what they're doing over there. And generally the over there is a big and successful church. And as I read and think about the church, as I read Colossians 3, verse 12 to 17, I find myself thinking about everything I read through the filter of Creekside Church in a somewhat uh, fairly small town. Are we a city or not yet? I'm not sure where a town becomes a city. But we're small. And so I thought, well, does size relegate churches to the status of also-rans within the big picture of church? By the time you get to the 100th largest city in Canada, you have a population of about 40,000 people. So the 100th largest city in Canada, 40,000 people. There are about 3,500 cities and towns across this great country, which means 3,400 of them are either small or very small. And their churches are likely small or maybe very small. Certainly too small to hire several full-time pastors or to provide well-packaged programs. And so are they simply out of luck? I think about this in summer usually, when Eva and I may uh, take a little trip 
And quite often it's towards the Kootenays. And so I might find myself saying to Eva, so what? What if we actually lived in one of these little places? Eva assures me that that will never happen. <laughs> but what would it be like? And one of the strongest reasons why Eva said, you know, not going to happen, has to do with church. And so I, I continue to think about that as you go through Sparwood or Greenwood or Taslow or you name it. My guess is we would probably try to hunt down another family or two that believed. And we would probably gather in whosoever home was most convenient. And we would still do church. And so when I ask, is it possible that small churches can experience all they need as God's people? I think the answer is, is a loud yes. But it means that the people of God need to choose to live as the family of God. And it begs the question, what is it that we are called to be? What is it that we are called to do? What are we supposed to look like? And so I want to end again. Well, I'm not quite ending, so it sounds like an apology. But For anyone who sees church gathered as kind of an optional thing, these verses, I think, would be very troubling. Because everything Paul says is actually relational in terms of practice. So I want you, as I read these verses again, it's going to be a slightly different translation. Let these verses create in your mind a picture of church. And secondly, perhaps I... I will challenge you to ask God where he might see you in that picture. What gifts perhaps has God given you that at this point may not be you being used? Maybe they are. But the picture of church that I get here is one that includes us all. Colossians 3, 12 to 17. The first line is such a beautiful thing. It says, since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must 
forgive others. And above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace. And always be thankful. Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God and do it with thankful hearts. Whatever you do, whatever you say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to him, to God the Father. I read that and I think, you know, this, it's not about a formula. It's not about, it's not a blueprint. It speaks to the heart of who we are, how we think about ourselves, and how we think about one another within the context of the church. That the path of discipleship is about working out our salvation alongside some other people. So you may ask, well, how do we do that? I think to some extent we try to do that on a Sunday morning. You ask, what does that look like for me, for you? Again, I would ask, what is it that God may be calling you to do with the gifts that he has given you? They are all intended for one purpose, and that's to build up the church. I know at this time of year, it's uh, almost June, there are many groups that are small groups that are kind of coming to an end. I am grateful to God for every one of the small groups that has met over this last year. I'm grateful to those who have hosted them, who have led them. Uh, I think they are invaluable to living out Colossians 3, 12 to 17. As we move closer to summer, I encourage those of you who may have the gift of hospitality to continue to exercise that gift. Maybe even sometimes you might want to invite over somebody you don't know. Get to know them a little bit because they're walking a spiritual journey with you. As a church, we're going to try to find some ways, even in the summer, where we could maybe gather as church family for whoever is interested for a picnic. Uh, there's lots of beautiful little parks, and uh, whether it's a Thursday night or a Friday night, and just invite people who want to come. I think there's a profound simplicity about the church that we need to embrace. Uh, and really, it's about our own willingness to be the church, that it is all about all of us. 
And I pray that we would continue to listen to that call, to think about it, to think about what the church is, maybe to reread that passage, and that we would seek to serve and to love one another. I'm going to pray, and I'll ask the worship band to come back. Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, your word, which, Father, you say is living and active. That God, it has a way of speaking right into the very heart of who we are. And Father, I thank you this morning for this church, this group of believers gathered this morning here at Creekside. And Father, I pray for your hand to continue to rest upon us and that you would lead us and guide us and direct us by the Spirit of God. Father, may we continue to lift up your name in praise and with thanksgiving. And Father, help us live out what you have called us to be, your church, your family, and the children of God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.